This cartoon is from a 1993 issue of a journal for ministers called Leadership. I've had it on the wall above my desk for a long time. I like the reminder that it gives. Um, you can see a preacher sitting at his desk between an inbox and an outbox, and uh, both are loaded with paper. Um, he's working on a sack of papers, and do you see how panicky he looks? Um, I've always taken it that this was supposed to be Saturday night. Um, but what I want us to notice in the cartoon is the, the stack of phone messages that are at the front of the desk. Uh, one message says, God called just to talk. Another says, God wants to get together. Another says, God called back. Another says, God misses your chats. God called again. And I think the, the point of those messages is really pretty obvious that the preacher's been neglecting his spiritual life. He's been neglecting his prayer life. And, and even though that's true, God hasn't stopped wanting to talk to him, hasn't stopped caring about him. We might stop and think, well, you know, that's really terrible that the preacher forgot to pray or wasn't praying. But when we think about that, it's no more terrible for a preacher than an elder neglecting his prayer life or a deacon or a teacher. No more terrible for a preacher than any Christian uh, who forgets to pray or who gets too busy to pray. Without a doubt, if we're too busy to pray, we are too busy. And what makes it so terrible is that our Father in Heaven wants us to pray. He invites us to pray. One of the great greatest gifts we have as Christians is the privilege of prayer, which is truly a wondrous, gracious gift when we consider that our Father is the one who created the universe and sustains the universe with the power of his word. Our Heavenly Father is the one who's been working from the Garden of Eden to this very day to save us from our sins. Our Father in Heaven is the one who gave His one and only Son to die on the cross for our sins. He opened the way to His throne and He pleads with us to come to that throne in Hebrews 10, 19-25. So why is it we have these times in our lives that we neglect our privilege of prayer when uh, we we don't seem to have the time to pray that we need. But we do have seasons in our lives when when we struggle with prayer. And yet Jesus gave us his own example of faithfulness in prayer. He taught the disciples about prayer, and we find him more than once urging them to pray. We think of the sleeping disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. He taught them that there were some situations that could only be dealt with, with by prayer. We think of the demon-possessed boy in, in Mark chapter 9 that the disciples failed to help. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches the lesson that prayer is part of our life in God's kingdom. He teaches us to pray, and in teaching us to pray, not only does he teach us about communicating with God, he is also teaching us some things about our relationship with God. And so this evening, I want us to listen to Jesus' teaching about prayer, and the passage before us is Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Pray then like this, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father also will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus begins in verse 9 by explaining that the significance of the prayer that he is about to give. He simply says, pray like this, or this is how you should pray. In this, Jesus is saying, here is a model for prayer. Here are subjects that you are to include in your prayer, or even here is an order for addressing these subjects in prayer. But notice that Jesus doesn't say here or in the parallel in Luke 11 that this is the only prayer to pray or that this is the only way to pray. It's not wrong for us to pray this prayer privately or publicly, but Jesus' intention was not to put words in our mouth, but to give us a model of what prayer should be, an example of what prayer should be. One of the best ways to obey Jesus in verse 9 is the way that early Christians did. We know that the early church saw this prayer as an outline, as a list of concerns to personalize and to make their own. They saw it as a guide to prayer, an aid to prayer, not something to be memorized and repeated without thought. And we can use this prayer that Jesus teaches in the same way that they did. So Jesus begins by teaching that prayer begins with praise. Look at verse 9 and 10. When Jesus, when Jewish people in Jesus' day prayed, they addressed God with great, great reverence. They addressed him with awe. They, they had a sense of the holy, a sense that uh, they were in a place that they should remove their shoes. They would address God as master of the universe or the Lord of hosts, or the one who gives bread, and so on. Jewish people in Jesus' day felt very keenly the distance between God and themselves, and that's reflected in the way they prayed. When you look at prayers that have been recorded from Jesus' time, or near Jesus' time, they don't seem to have thought about God in the personal, intimate terms that are so familiar to us. To, to offer up a prayer to the master of the universe is certainly to say something that is true, but we don't think of God so much in those distant uh, terms. But it was common in Jesus' day. So Jesus comes along and he teaches his disciples uh, and us that the one whom we pray is certainly all of those things. He is the master of the universe and the Lord of hosts. But above all, he is the one that we address as our Father. If we're Christians, if we're Jesus' disciples, we're privileged to enjoy a close, intimate relationship with God. When we pray, we don't pray as subjects of a king as much as we pray as God's beloved children. We come to a Father who loves us and who cares for us and who stands ready to listen to our prayers. We may have had earthly fathers who were not all that they should have been, but our Father God is always what he should have been, and he is always there to listen to our prayers. But Jesus also adds our Father in heaven. That our Father is in heaven suggests that maybe the Jewish people weren't entirely wrong in their reverence and awe of God. While we come to God as his children, we do come in reverence and profound respect. 
When we pray, we are not sending messages that will be passed on by Jesus, but we're enjoying conversation with God in Jesus' name. We are in his presence. And faithful children of God will be humbled by their Father's greatness and humbled by his holiness and humbled by his majesty and power. Attitudes that can also guide our behavior in public worship. After addressing God, we make our first petition. A petition not for something for ourselves, but for something for God. And that petition is that his name be hallowed. When you were a kid, did you ever get in a fight with somebody because they said something bad about your mom or about your dad? That ever happened to you? Girls do that too, don't they? And you're not, any of you ever did that? Ah, come on. Okay, maybe not. Well, God's name is holy, and he is holy. But the world doesn't treat God as holy. The world does not treat his name as if it was holy. How often in the course of a day do we hear God's name taken in vain? How often do we hear people treat God's name as if it was a common and vulgar word, as if it made no difference that we were using the name of God in that way, by people who live as if he didn't exist? The command in the Ten Commandments not to take his name in vain is not so much to use God's name as a curse word. It's don't talk about God as if he didn't exist. That's the essence of that commandment, and that's reflected here. Maybe the most modern equivalent of all of this, maybe you've heard somebody say, oh, my God. You ever watched uh, House Hunters? They walk into this brand-new house and, oh, my God. And you just can't help but think to yourself, you know, if these people really had God, they wouldn't be talking this way. And so it becomes a rather insulting thing. We want God's name to be spoken with reverence and respect. And as we begin to pray to God and as we address him, we ask that his name might be made holy, that people will come to an understanding of his holiness and that people will come to reverence his name. Jesus teaches us to make a second petition, and like the first, it is not a petition for ourselves but one for him. We pray that our Father's kingdom will come. Some of us believe that because the kingdom came on the day of Pentecost that we should not pray this, or at least it's not necessary. But that's not true. Jesus himself taught that his presence in the world meant that the kingdom had come. And yet here he is teaching the disciples to pray for its coming. And none of us would deny that there are places in the world where the church has not yet gone, cannot be found. And so in that sense, there are places in which we can pray that the kingdom will still come. Or more importantly, there are still countless hearts in which God is not king, in which God does not rule. And if there's one place left on earth where there is no church, we need to be praying this prayer. If there's one heart that is not bowed in submission to God's rule, We must continue to pray, thy kingdom come. As long as we live in this sinful world and wait for the fullness of the reign of God, the kingdom of God to come in all of its heavenly glory, we are to pray this. We are to pray for the consummation of all things and for God's ultimate glory. But then Jesus gives us a third petition, and like the first two, again, it is about God. Now we ask that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
I especially like the way one writer explained this. He said, when God gives a command to his angels, the angels obey him. When he gives a command to his son, his son obeys him. Even when that command is to put aside his deity and become a human being and experience death, the son obeyed. In heaven, there is no contrast between obedience and disobedience. There is only obedience. There is no warning in heaven from God about calling someone a fool. There is no warning to anyone in heaven about adultery or about lust. Heaven has no need for God's warnings against divorce or against vengeance. No one in heaven needs to be told to love their enemies. But here on earth, where people disobey God, where people have his will revealed in scripture and know his will but do not practice it, we need to pray for that. We need to pray that God's will will be obeyed. All around us are people who do not know God's will and who live as if it didn't matter. And so Jesus teaches us to pray that God's will will be done, that people will learn his will and practice it. In praying these things, we don't simply express our desire that others will glorify God by hallowing his name or receiving his rule or doing his will. We are at the heart of the matter praising God by saying, I will hallow your name in the way I speak and live. I will honor you as my king and bow before your sovereignty. I will obey your will in what I do and what I say and what I think. And so the heart of these three first three petitions is really praise and worship and commitment. For in them we acknowledge that God is our Holy Father, our Sovereign King, and our Gentle Master. But then Jesus teaches us further that in addition to these petitions of praise, prayer is also to include supplication. Look at verses 11 through 13. We pray, we praise God first, we glorify him, and then we bring our request to him. This order of praise first and then request is important. We should learn from it. It is a confession that God is the beginning and the end. It is a confession of our dependence on him. It is an acknowledgement that we need him who is greater than ourselves, our dependence on him who provides all we need. Our first supplication then to our Father in heaven is for our daily bread. If this is a morning prayer, we are asking God to provide this day's bread. If it's prayed at night, we are asking for tomorrow's food. As someone has said so well, and as it's been ignored so often, we are to pray for our needs, not our greeds. In this request, we confess our need for God's support and God's care. Here we confess that we cannot sustain ourselves but that we are dependent on him sustaining us. Now, I don't know about the first century, but for Americans, that's a hard thing to do. We aren't going to depend on anybody except ourselves. But Jesus says to ask God for our daily food. And so we need to do that and learn that it is he who provides for us, that ultimately it is God who upholds us and sustains us. Second, we ask our Heavenly Father to forgive our debts. We have a debt of sin. We confess that we have walked before God in our own way and not in his way. 
Like the tax collector in Jesus' parable in Luke 18, we strike our breast and ask God to be merciful to us, a sinner. But Jesus teaches us that our desire to be forgiven must also be an expression in the way we forgive those that sin against us. If we are a forgiving person, if it's part of our makeup, if it's part of the way that we deal with others that we give forgiveness, Jesus is saying, then God will forgive us. But if we're not, if we withhold our forgiveness, if we bear a grudge, if we never forget wrongs done to us, if we never give forgiveness, Jesus says, then God will not forgive us our sins. This is not to say that we earn God's forgiveness by giving someone else our forgiveness. But it is to say that if our hearts are hard and closed to those who are that sin against us, then we cannot receive the forgiveness that God would give us. And finally, Jesus teaches to ask our Heavenly Father not to lead us into temptation, but to deliver us from the evil one or from evil. In asking God to forgive us our sins, we are also confessing that we have no ground on which to boast of our ability to resist sin. The evil one is in the world. Peter describes him as a lying walking to and fro on the earth to see who he can devour. He works for our downfall. He works for us to lose our salvation. And so Jesus is really saying, don't take that on by yourself. Don't think that in yourself you're strong enough to resist that. But instead, pray for help. Pray for God's deliverance. Pray for God to provide a way of escape. Jesus teaches us to pray, not just that God will help us get out of temptation's way, but that he will lead us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. That our Father will strengthen us and transform us, that he will draw us deeper and deeper into the light. And just as we depend on God for physical sustenance, we will learn to depend on him for moral triumph and spiritual victory as well, as another writer put it. In these petitions, Jesus teaches us to pray about our spiritual needs and our physical needs. And in doing so, he is saying in a loud voice that we matter to God. He doesn't tell us this just to fill in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. He expects us to offer these kinds of prayers because God cares. Because God cares about us. And he has granted us this privilege. The God who created and who sustains the universe cares about us. We just saying, yes, for me. For me, he careth with loving, tender care. He cares about the smallest aspects of our lives. He cares about the greatest things in our lives. He commands us through the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 to pray without ceasing. He commands us in the Sermon on the Mount later to ask and to seek and to knock and to do that in confidence that, that he will give, that he will help us find, and that he will open. God is a loving Father who always gives good gifts to his children, including the gift of his undivided attention when we talk to him in prayer. Don't make God leave messages for you like God called just to talk. God wants to get together. God called back. God misses your chats. God called again. Let the words of his one and only son be sufficient 
to encourage you in your prayer life. God is waiting to hear from you, so I hope you'll talk to him soon. I want to finish with a song of encouragement. If you're here tonight in need of prayer, uh, one of the great gifts we have or privileges that we have is to go to the Father in behalf of each other in prayer. And so if you need prayers tonight, won't you come while we stand and sing?